Well, it's just our privilege to um, host today Krish Kandia, who is uh, just an amazing man. And Krish, on just uh, behalf of uh, the UK church, we want to thank you for what you've done for bringing this message of adoption right back and fostering right back into the heart of, of the UK church. And we are totally behind you. I've been watching you for a distance. So privileged to have you here today. I know there's a th- hundreds of other places you could have been. It's such a privilege f- to have you here today uh, with us. And we just want to thank you uh, for all you are. And can we just applaud Chris before he gets up because I want to show a video first but we're going to just applaud you Chris for who you are and what you've done thank you and Chris wanted the the introduction to be done by video so just watch this quick video and then he's going to come up hi I'm Chris Kandaya and yes that is Chris as in Krishna but No, I'm not related to Harry Krishna. And while we're putting things straight, no, my dad has never run a corner shop. And no, I don't eat curry for breakfast. And no, I don't use cumin and chili powder instead of using deodorant. It drives me mad when people assume things about me. I resent that surprised expression on people's faces when I walk into a room looking foreign and then speak in English. And equally, it annoys me that people think just because I'm over 40, I'm gonna prefer golf to 10-pin bowling or red wine to Coca-Cola. Just because I'm from Brighton doesn't mean I can't support Liverpool Football Club. Just because I'm a Christian does not mean I brainwash my children. Just because I teach theology doesn't mean I don't like a good party. Just because I've got six children doesn't mean I haven't got space for one more. And just because I own a van does not mean I drive inconsiderately. The point is, just because you know something about me does not mean you know everything about me. Being judged, labelled, stereotyped has a paradoxical effect. Those that think they know me don't know me at all. I'm even more of a stranger to them than they realise. So what if we've treated God in the same way? What if it is precisely because we think we know God that we don't know him at all? What if we've assumed he's close by when really he's very far away? What if we've assumed he's very far away when actually he's very close? The Bible is full of people who made mistakes along the same lines. Many of them even failed to recognise God when he turned up. And yet whenever God did turn up, unannounced, uninvited, unrecognised, something truly revolutionary was about to kick off. What if God is deliberately strange? What if it is in trying to understand the uncontainable God that our minds are brought into life? What if our minds are like a teacup and the knowledge of God is like the unending, unfathomable volume of water roaring over Niagara Falls? What if it is in welcoming this unexpected God that our lives take on a whole new meaning? What if it is a good thing that God is stranger? Good morning, everyone. Oh, it's good afternoon. It's lovely to be with you. A friend of mine made that video because he's passionate about the work we're doing, trying to change the minds of Christians about vulnerable people. Um, A lot of people don't care yet about fostering or adoption. Fostering seems to be something you do if you don't have enough money in your life and you need a, a form of income. Adoption seems to be something you do if there aren't enough children in your life and you need a way to have kids. We're trying to flip that around and show this is central to God's heart. And so I wrote this book 
God is stranger as a bit of a, a Trojan horse, a, a bit of a, let's keep you talking on the doorstep while a big idea sneaks in through the back window. So the idea in this book is that God is strange. He's difficult to understand. If you read some of the Old Testament, God does some pretty weird things. Do you remember how he turns up at Abraham's tent disguised as three strangers? And in the very next chapter, he turns up through some angels into Sodom, uh, the city of Sodom, and the whole city comes out to try to sexually assault those angels. Weird stuff. God is stranger than maybe we've thought about. And so this book looks at some of the difficult passages in the Bible, the bits that you're not supposed to highlight, the bits that don't turn up on fridge magnets uh, or on erasers for children. And this is the book that's going to help you look at some of those difficult passages. But while you're talking on the doorstep about how strange God is, another big idea creeps in the back window. And it's an idea you're very familiar with here at the King's Arms. And by the way, ever since I've heard about your church, I think I heard about your church about 20 years ago, I think you have the best name of any church <laughs> in the country. What a beautiful idea, isn't it? That we are welcomed into the King's Arms, that he welcomes us, that hospitality is at the very core of who we understand ourselves to be. So that's why I've written this book. And I've got good news and bad news. The good news is for you, the bad news is for me. Um, the lovely people at the charity we founded, Home for Good, uh, would love to give you this book for free. That's bad news for me, because I'm an author, and authors like people buying the book. Um, and they'll give it to you free if you'd like to give us a regular donation. It can be as big or as small as you like, but help us find a home for every child that needs one in the UK. And the lovely guys at the back will give you this for free. Okay? If you like to support authors, there's another way we can do this, but let's, let's talk about that later. Okay, and um, it's been amazing already, hasn't it? What a powerful story from Lisa. And I got to meet Mr. C in the half-time break, and he's fantastic. It's hard to imagine some of where he's come from, just the way that Lisa and her family just loved on him and shown him the grace of God. And we're so grateful for Rachel and uh, her championing of Home for Good. And some of you might know the Llewellyns, you know, Dominic and Becca. Uh, Home for Good would not exist without Dom because Dom's brought all his skills onto the Home for Good board. So we feel a real affinity with you as a church. So thank you. Thank you for uh, your support. Uh, but we're going to get a bit controversial now. I hope we'll still be friends at the end of this. I'm going to show you a picture, and I just want you to talk to your neighbour and tell me what colour is the shoe. Have a little chat with your neighbour. What colour is the shoe? Okay, someone on this side, tell me, what colour is the shoe? Put your hand up. What do you see? Pink and white. Does anyone else see pink and white? Okay. Who sees something else, not pink and white? You. What do you see? What do you see? Light green and grey. Light blue. Light blue and grey. Who else sees not pink and white? Hands up, nice and high. Weird. Weird, weird. I'd love to tell you it's because of where you're sat. It's not to do with that. Let me show you another picture that sometimes helps. Do you remember this one? Yeah, okay, hands up if you see gold and white. Nice and high. Excellent, hand up if you see blue and black. Weird, weird. So this is a user-generated product placement picture from Amazon. It's a dress. And it, again, it's not because of where you're sat that you're seeing different colours. I'd love to tell you if you're Anglican, that's why you see white 
and gold. Because they like dresses and crowns and all that kind of thing. And if you're a Baptist like me, you're going to see blue and black because we see water everywhere. But it's not. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm from all sorts of places, as maybe you saw in that little video. My dad is from Malaysia. My dad's dad is from Sri Lanka. My mum's from India. And as you probably guessed, her dad is Irish. So I'm a quarter Irish. No one guesses that about me. I feel very at home here, actually. It's nice to see how that you're as international as I am. That's really pleasing. But I'm, I'm quite British on the inside. And uh, I went to see the opticians not long ago. And they, they really get in your face, don't they? I like my personal space. And I could tell that the optician had been eating oranges <laughs> without her telling me. Oh, that was complicated. So I got out my phone and I showed her this picture. And that bought me some personal space. Thank you very much. And she said, what's going on here is that your brain is trying to figure out where natural sunlight is. And it uses that as the kind of white balance and then figures out all the other colours in respect to that. So the reason that you and I and, and the people you're sitting next to are looking at the same picture but seeing something different is because of something internal to you. I think that's a really helpful way of thinking about what it means to be a Christian. To you and your non-Christian friends or families or colleagues or schoolmates, you're all looking at the same world, but because of something God is doing inside you, you see things differently. Many people think Christianity is just a bolt-on, isn't it? Something you do on a Sunday morning, something you do with 10% of your time or 10% of your money, but we think it's bigger than that, don't we? Becoming a Christian changes Everything, everything I see and everything I do in the world is changed by the gospel. In Romans 12, Paul talks about the renewing of your mind. You've received mercy from God and grace from God. So now you want to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. And then through the renewing of your mind, you'll know how to live. The gospel and the Holy Spirit are changing you. So now everything you see is different. Does that make sense? So let's test that a little bit. And no pressure, but the previous service were awesome at this, okay? <laughs> that, that, you know, just honour and glory is at stake. There are no physical prizes available. But I'm going to show you another picture in a second, and I'm going to ask you to do some really deep work on it. And you're going to get to talk to a neighbour about it. Let's see the next picture. This is a little boy. I can't tell you his real name. We're going to call him Robert for this morning. And I can't show you his face, because Robert is currently in foster care. In fact, Robert has been in foster care for most of his life. And for most of that time, actually, Robert has been available to be adopted. All the legal stuff is ready, and so Robert is just waiting to be adopted. He's in a little book. The book is called Be My Parent. It's a book you're allowed to look in if you've been approved to be an adopter. But most people look at Robert, and they see his real face. They see his story. Robert has a speech delay, which means sometimes he gets a bit frustrated that he can't express himself in the way that he wants to. And sometimes that works its way out as difficult to manage behaviour at school. And because we want people to be realistic and not kind of, you know, looking at the world through rose-tinted glasses, we, we tell you a little bit about some of those challenges that Robert's facing. And because of that, when people read his profile, they're not interested anymore and they turn the page. You see, in the UK, most people that are coming forward for adoption are coming because of infertility. 
Adoption is seen to be the third worst way to have a child. There's natural birth, which is a wonderful gift, and for some people there's IVF, and if IVF doesn't work, well, there's always adoption. And we as a church and as a nation, we're not brilliant at standing alongside and helping people that are wrestling with infertility. Sometimes even well-meaning people can, can say some comments to people, particularly couples, about why they haven't had kids yet, or what's going on, or how great kids are, and actually just piles more pressure on them. We need to be better at standing with people that are wrestling with infertility. But when infertility is your driver for adoption, at least according to the national stats, you really, really want a baby. Robert's not a baby. Robert doesn't meet those expectations. He's five years old and he's got a speech delay. And so people look at Robert and they go, he's going to be a problem. He's going to be difficult. He's going to grow up and cause trouble in other people's lives. And do you know what? It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because sadly, statistically, what happens to a lot of care leavers is that they don't get to live the lives that most of us enjoy living. It's great to hear about your church's passion for prison ministry. It's absolutely brilliant. But did you know, of the male population of prisoners in the UK that are under 25, 50% of them are young men that have aged out of foster care. I know you care about homelessness. I know that's part of the history of this church. But did you know that care leavers are overrepresented in the homeless population? I know, I'm guessing, you care about trying to end people trafficking and sexual exploitation. It's one of the biggest issues that the UK church is engaged in. We're doing some fantastic work across the nation. But did you know in some areas it's 30%, in other areas it's 70% of sex workers are young girls that have aged out of foster care. I say, keep going in the prisons and amongst the homeless and ending people trafficking. But let's also think about intervening early, when they're Robert's age or a little bit older. But most people aren't thinking that way. And so they turn the page. And the word written over Robert's life so far is unadoptable. Are you ready for your bit of homework? Chat with your neighbour just for a minute. And see if you can think of three things that God sees when he looks at Robert. Remember we said that because of the gospel, we now see everything differently. Well, what does it mean for how we see Robert? Three things. If you're new to church or exploring church for the first time, have a guess what the God that we've been singing about and singing to this morning would see when he looks at Robert. Have a go. It is going to be competitive, not just between you and the previous service, but this side versus this side versus this side. And you've got 90 seconds, so be quick. Three things. Have a go. Okay, I'm going to start. Let's start on this side. It's always good to go first, get the easy ones out of the way. If you're at school or, or going to college, uh, that's a good academic tip. In, in a seminar, get the easy answer out of the way. The, your tutor will love you and you're off the hook for the rest of the time. It's, it's a good little skill. 
Uh, someone over here, give me something. One thing. God sees. Put your hand up and I'll, I'll call you out. Come on. He's adopted already. God wants to adopt Robert into his family. We sang it this morning, didn't we? In uh, our, our song, uh, Amazing Grace. Who makes the orphan a son or daughter? The king of glory. It's weird how infrequently we Christians remember our adoption story. When God adopted you, do you know why he did it? Was God lonely? Was he poor? Was he infertile? What was God's motivation? God didn't adopt you or me because he needed it. God adopted us because we needed it. Doesn't that just turn a light on for you? This isn't about getting money out of kids or even getting some sort of fulfillment out of kids. This is about us stepping up and being what they need us to be. That means a whole bunch of different people might think about adoption that had never thought about it before. I've had kids, great. Use those skills, pour into another generation. I can't have kids, great. Think about extending who you might welcome into your family. Not just a baby, a three-year-old needs love just as much as a baby does. I'm single. Do you know what? You could be the single best parent a child like Robert's ever known. And the rest of the church, we could support you in that, couldn't we? Thank you very much. Really helpful. Someone in here, give me something. Yes. Yes, he's unconditionally loved by God. Think about it. The most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved middle class people, white people, rich people, people that have both parents. No. For God so loved the world. Every single human being on this planet is loved by God. Whatever their ethnicity, whatever their social demographic background, whatever their sexuality, age, gender, they are loved by God. That means you're loved by God. That means Robert is loved by God. Doesn't mean necessarily that we've all responded to God as we should have done. But Robert needs to know he's passionately loved by God, isn't he? Really helpful. Thank you. Over here. No pressure. These guys have done great. Yes, please. He's talented. That's right. It's really interesting. If, you, if you're into superheroes, I went to see Thor Ragnarok last night with my kids. I'll tell you, it's the best Thor film so far. Actually, that's not hard. The others have been pretty poor. It's one of my favorite superhero films. If you look, how many superheroes are orphans? Have you noticed that? Batman. Superman. Spider-Man being brought up by his auntie. Yeah. So, James Bond. Harry Potter. Luke Skywalker. Frodo. It's bizarre, isn't it? Keep going. There's so many. We believe that as a culture that someone that's come from nothing can become a hero. We believe that. But compare and contrast. Can you think of any positive... Well, can you think of any foster carers who come out well in the movie industry. So, do you remember Harry Potter? His foster carers are a nightmare, aren't they? Despicable me in that fostering home. Terrible. Annie, foster home, awful. Foster carers are evil, money-grabbing people, according to the media. But we recognise that children have potential. So many people are writing Robert off because of his history. He's coming from a difficult family. He's got a speech delay. He's been disruptive in class. We think that is rubbish, and therefore his future is going to be rubbish. But we believe in redemption, don't we? You see that picture of the chrysalis that can turn into a butterfly? 
That's what we believe because we've experienced it. Think back, what were you like before you became a Christian? According to the Bible, you and I, we were dead in our transgressions and sins. We were broken. But God says, I see something I can work with. I can transform you. By the grace of God, we can bring transformation into these kids' lives. Now, be careful. The Hollywood picture says fostering's easy or adoption's easy. You just welcome the kids in. You read them a little bedtime story with three little kittens. And, and everything will work out just wonderful. That's not the way it works. 70% of kids in care have experienced physical violence, sexual violence, or neglect. That sort of stuff doesn't go away with just a few bedtime stories or even a few prayers. Some of these children have scars on the outside of their bodies. All of them have scars on the inside. And our job is to walk alongside them and keep on pouring unconditional love into their lives, even if it's tough. Isn't that the way that God has loved you and me? Since you became a Christian, have you been perfect? I mean, no problems socially, physically, emotionally. Most of us are walking with emotional scars, aren't we? That God is in the process of healing over time. But he still walks with us. That's the kind of love we're called to show to these children. Really helpful. Any last, any last one. We could have a late winner. Come on. He's perfect. I want to say that he is fearfully and wonderfully made. Is that fair? I was telling the earlier congregation, my daughter is 15 years old. And being a 15-year-old girl, there's a lot of stress, isn't there? Particularly about appearance. Our culture says you've got to look a certain way, dress a certain way, behave a certain way. The magazines tell you, social media tells you, all your mates tell you. And so she's got a mirror in her room, floor-to-ceiling mirror. But on top of it, she's got a verse from Psalm 139. Fearfully and wonderfully made. That's what I want to keep speaking over her. Every day, no matter what the media is telling, whatever her mates are telling her, she's fearfully and wonderfully made. So she doesn't look like other kids. She's fearfully and wonderfully made. And therefore, in God's eyes, incredibly precious. Friends, I don't know what you see when you look in the mirror. I don't know whether you, you're, you're happy with who you are. I want to tell you that God says you're fearfully and wonderfully made. And if that's true for you and me and my daughter, it's true for Robert too, isn't it? A lot of kids in care. Did you, did you hear that story that Mr. C shared? Couldn't see any point of why I was here. I felt empty inside. Don't you just want to speak love into their lives? Some kids tell us that, that, that they're just an accident. Their parents tell them they're just an accident. Some of the ways that, that birth parents have treated children have said that you're not welcome on this planet. But I want to say to them, whatever anyone says, including your birth parents, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. That's what they need to hear. All right, I've got one more thing for you before we um, just look at a really interesting uh, passage of the Bible. Okay, I'm going to take your photo. I'm a bit of a photo freak. And if you want to see it at the end, I'll be on the stall. Um, I've got thousands of pictures of my family. And you can have a look at them. I know this is, this is um, cultured Bedford. But imagine if I showed you a picture of my family and then I saw your face curl up in disgust. Or, or even worse... I know this isn't the first service, but imagine that you were to spit on a picture of my family. At one level, it doesn't matter. My phone is a Samsung Galaxy S7 Edge. 
which just happens to be waterproof. <laughs> but even if you have that toxic saliva that could get into the inner workings of my phone, I am backed up in the cloud. <laughs> so you can't do any harm to my photos. But symbolically, you spit on a picture of my family. What does that tell me about how you feel about my family? You see, what we do or don't do to someone made in the image of God is an indicator of how we feel about God. Remember the two greatest commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and mind and love your neighbour as yourself. I went to visit a friend. He had a sign outside his house. It said, love me, love my dog. I get where he's coming from. I've got a cat. I haven't got a dog. But if you're mean to my cat, you're mean to me, aren't you? There's a connection. God is saying, if you love me, you will love your neighbor. He's also saying, if you don't love your neighbor, you don't love me. Does that make sense? Robert is our neighbor. And not just Robert. Robert represents nearly 100,000 children in care in the UK right now. 70% of them, we said, neglect, abuse, violence in their history. These kids need our love. You're thinking, Chris, this is impossible. That's too many. Okay, currently, around 4,500 children are waiting for adoption in the UK. On our watch, in our time. 9,000, roughly, more foster families are needed. Yeah, and Chris, we, I know we're a big church, but we, we can't handle that. That sounds like 100 kids each. How are we going to do this? Here's the logic of why our families started fostering and adopting, and then we started a charity. Of churches like yours, maybe not the same scale as yours, there's around 15,000 churches in the UK. Churches that love Jesus, compassionate, care about the poor, care about the gospel. How's, how's your maths? Have you worked it out? I don't need each Christian to adopt 10 children. Do you know what I need? I just need one new family per church, the rest of the church to support them, and we've done it. We've met the, com the complete current need in the system right now. One new family per church. Does that sound doable? Look around. Is that doable? So we're asked to your help. Come on. Let's change the lives of these children. Let's change the lives of our church. Let's be a living witness to our nation of the gospel with words for sure but with actions that are going to speak sometimes louder than our words. There's one more thing we can say about Robert. We're going to have to look at quite a complicated, challenging part of the Bible to do so. And when I share it with you, it is probably the most controversial passage I could share with you. I seem to get in trouble either with progressive-type Christians or with conservative-type Christians when I share that. So the chances of us being friends at the end could be slim. But I'm going to give it a try anyway. Are you up for it? Okay. If you want to follow along in your own Bibles, it's Matthew chapter 25, the last parable that Jesus teaches before he goes to the cross. Let me read it to you. Verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, 
You who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Keep going. Thanks, bit. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me. You who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Can you see why this might be a controversial passage to look at? For my progressive friends, we're talking about heaven and hell. The people that talk about heaven and hell tend to be the the guy in Oxford Circus with his megaphone, who seems to glory in telling people they're all going to hell. It's like he's trying to scare people into the kingdom. But I don't sense that tone in Jesus' voice, do you? Why is Jesus warning people? I think his motivation is love, isn't it? He needs to tell you what's at stake. This isn't a game. Simon was so good, wasn't he? Calling us out, out of a lukewarm, kind of just turning up at church Christianity into a a full-blooded, kind of white-hot, red-hot living for God. I think this is what Jesus is doing. This passage is like a defibrillator. It's waking you up. Look what's at stake. There are a few rules when kids come to live in our house. We have six kids live in our house at the moment. Three are birth kids and three have a looked after background. One of the rules we have in our house is don't lick the plug sockets. (laughs) I don't have that rule to restrict children or to kind of scare them. I have it because... I want to warn them because I love them. I want to protect them. That's the tone of Jesus' voice here, isn't it? I'm letting you know in advance so that you're ready. You're ready to face me. But this passage also seems to annoy conservatives. Where we say, hold on, Jesus, haven't you heard of the Reformation? We don't believe in salvation by works. We believe in salvation by faith and by grace. Jesus, you really ought to read a bit more New Testament. Maybe Paul. He'll help you out. How you get a bigger picture of the gospel? I've literally had people tell me that Jesus got the gospel wrong. I don't know about you. I'm old school. I think Jesus is pretty good on the gospel. I think all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. I don't think there's a conflict between Jesus and Paul or Paul and James. I think it's all part of God's revealed word. So how do we put it together? Very briefly. Think about it this way. I was, t- I was rubbish at statistics when I was at school. I, I, I got a U in my statistics exam. 
You as if you didn't actually turn up to sit the exam. But I was there. Someone told me that there's a big difference between causation and correlation. Let me give you an example. Uh, have you seen, I was driving here from where I live, um, and, and often by the side of motorways, you see these huge wind turbines. Have you seen them? They look like Mercedes signs. I don't know how Mercedes got the deal. I'd love to see an Audi or a Skoda one, but only see Mercedes ones. Have you noticed that the faster that those wind turbines spin, the windier it gets? Have you noticed that? <laughs> now, I've had all these hurricanes lately. Why don't we just turn the fans off? That would help, wouldn't it? Now, friends, of course, there is a correlation between wind speed and wind turbines spinning. But if you get your causation the wrong way around, you end up saying something silly, like I just did. Friends, there is a link between our good works of mercy and grace and compassion and being saved. But if you get the causation wrong, you end up saying something silly. We are not saved by our good deeds. Some of you know Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 really well, right? For it's been by grace that we've been saved through faith. This is not from yourself. It's a gift of God so that no one can boast. Not by works. Could he be any clearer? We are not saved by our good works. But some of you know Ephesians 2 verse 10. For we were created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. We are not saved by our good works, but we were saved for good works. The change in our life of showing mercy and grace to those that are most in need is a demonstration that we have been saved by God. That's why you've received grace, you want to pass it on. You've received unconditional love, you want to pass it on. That's why Jesus says, this is the test. It's not how many times you've turned up at church. It's not how well you sing. It's not whether you've signed some kind of doctrinal statement. It's whether the love of God is flowing out of your life into other people. That's why he's telling us this. But did you notice everyone in the passage is surprised? They go, I don't remember Jesus. Jesus, I'm sure if we'd seen you turn up in the food bank with the glory of God and the angels, we would have noticed. We'd have written it in our log. Son of God turned up, treated him well. But Jesus came in disguise. Why? Tim Keller tells a story about an elderly woman who has one surviving heir. She's incredibly wealthy. And the older she gets and the frailer she gets, the more this young nephew comes to visit her. And she says, why, why, why are you coming so often? You know, well, what's going on? He says, oh, that's just the kind of person I am. I like to care for people in need. Now, how can she know whether her young nephew really does care about people or whether it's just a case of where there's a will, there's a way? <laughs> Do you know what she does? She takes off her fine clothes and her fine jewellery. She disguises herself as a homeless person and sits at the door of this young nephew's house. That's how she'll know what kind of a person he is. Not if she turns up in her glory, but if she comes in humility. Jesus says, what you do for the least of these, you do for me. Do you get the title of my book? God is Stranger. We've got stranger danger going on in our nation, haven't we? 
fear the outsider, fear the foreigner, fear the refugee. We Christians believe in something radically different. We believe God is a stranger. And what we do for the last and the least and the lost, we do for him. As a little boy, I was freaked out by the crucifixion. I always thought if I I had been there, if I'd have hijacked Doctor Who's TARDIS, I could have turned the crowds around. Instead of shouting for Barabbas, I would have shouted for Jesus. I could have ended this mess. It took me a little bit longer in my theological journey to realize it wasn't a nine-year-old lack of TARDIS that meant Jesus died on the cross. Jesus willingly gave himself for us because he loves us, even in our brokenness, even in our sin. He loves us unconditionally. But the bit that really struck me is when Jesus was dying on the cross, he asks the world for something. He says, I am thirsty. What drink did the world give the Son of God as he died for the sins of the world? We gave him wine vinegar. That's the cheap stuff. That's the £1.99 for two litres at Sainsbury stuff. That's what the world brought. We should have brought him our best. I'd like to think if I was there, I would have brought him the best. Whatever needed bringing, I'd raid my wine cellar, or I'd find somewhere, buying, I'd bring Jesus the best. But friends, this passage says every day we have opportunity to give Jesus worship and honour as a guest in our house, not just our church, but to welcome him in by caring for those that are most in need. Now, there's plenty of ways you can do that. Some of you feel that as a life calling. Your social workers, your, your, your medics, your doctors, your teachers. You're, you're living your life. You're set in the course of your life because you want to make caring for vulnerable people a core part of who you are. Who you are. Brilliant. I've met so many people that are already fostering and adopting within the church. Amazing. But for the rest of us, what's God asking us to do? How can we demonstrate our love for God by loving those that are most in need? That's the challenge, I guess, from this morning. We need fresh eyes to see God in the lives of those that are most in need. I'm not asking for £10 a month, although that would be nice, you could do that. I'm asking for something a little bit more radical, something a bit more challenging. I'm asking you to open your home to the most vulnerable children in our country, welcome them in and love them as your own flesh and blood. That's pretty tough, isn't it? It's not for everybody. But if enough of us do it, we begin to send a signal to this nation. One last story, and then we'll just call the band up to make a response. I've got a picture of our back garden. Let me show it to you. This is a little boy. Can you see him in the middle? Don't take a picture of him. He's been in foster care. This little boy was called to his head teacher's office. And do you know what? He knew the way very well. Things were chaotic at home, and that chaos often came with him into school. And so he knew the way to the head teacher's office, but this time it was different. This time the head teacher speaks very kindly to him and asks him to sit down. And says, look, I've got some really tough news for you. At the end of school today, you're not going to be able to go home. You're going to have to go with this lady now. She's, she's got a social worker. Well, where's she going to take me? She's going to take you to, a, to another family. They're called a foster family. Well, can I, can I go and get my stuff? No, you, you can't go and get your stuff. Your stuff's going to be brought to you. Well, can I go and say goodbye to mum and dad? No, not today. You can't say goodbye to mum and dad, but you will see them soon. How about my sister? Can I say goodbye to my sister? No, not today. How about the dog? Can I go pat the dog? No, not today. You're going to go with this lady. So this little boy got into the social worker's car and was driven to our house. 
We open the door and we welcome him in. And there he is, he's in our lounge and he's just got his school uniform and his lunchbox and his PE kit. That's all he's got. But he's angry and he's, he's worried and he's nervous. His face is going red. His, his, his muscles are taut. And I've got to find some words to kind of make him feel like it's going to be okay. Like he's safe and secure. This little boy really wanted to go home. That wasn't possible. The closest he got to going home was, was using Google Maps, you know, on satellite view. How you can zoom in to the back garden to see what was going on there. That's as close as he got. At the end of his time with us, he was going to go on to be in a placement with his brother. And this was a good long-term placement. We were just supposed to be emergency carers, but he was with us for nine months. And they were amazing nine months. We had to make a little book. It's called his life history book. And we try to tell the story of his life as well as we can, honouring the people that had cared for him, honouring his birth parents, as well as those that had cared for him through school and social work. There weren't that many pictures of him before he came into care. But when he was with us, there were hundreds. Pictures of him on his birthday, getting a bike that someone had helped us get for him. Pictures of him at Christmas. Pictures of him at when the teachers had a strike in November and we went down the seaside. He'd never been in the sea before, so in he went in November. And he's him against the waves. Come on. I wanted a picture of the church. I could have taken a picture of the building or the baptistry or the pulpit, but this was our picture of the church. I wanted him to know the church were a bunch of people that were cheering him on, that there were people, adults and kids that had loved him. While he'd been with us. There's a lady there with ginger hair. She'd love to be a foster carer. But her circumstances don't make it possible. So do you know what? She's an honorary foster auntie. Which means when he turns up at church. She's the first one to greet him. She'll ask him about his week. You were a bit worried weren't you? I said I'd pray for you. How did it go? When it's Easter or Christmas. She'll send him a card or a gift. She's trying to let him know. She's for him. Friends that's my picture of what church can be. Not just an event that we turn up at once a week, but a family we belong to. That the most poor and vulnerable and broken are welcomed. Not just as people you sit alongside, but people you love. As the new family that God has made us. So I'm in a car. The book of this boy's life is in a bag. In fact, all of his stuff is in the back of the car. This is not the first time we're visiting his forever family, but this is the last time. This is the handover time. And they've done a great job. They've made up his room. They've even put a Liverpool Football Club poster on the wall. I don't know how that kind of change of allegiance happened, but it kind of just did. <laughs> and he's a little bit worried. Chris, is it going to be all right? I'm saying, mate, we've met them. They're amazing. They've got a dog. They've got an outdoor swimming pool. This is going to be amazing. Chris, do you think it's all right if I call this new family mum and dad? And I'm going, mate. That would be fantastic. And I don't know if you know this, but it's really hard to drive a car when you're crying. I'm thinking, thank you, Lord. Thank you that you allowed our family to be part of this little boy's journey. What he was like when he turned up at our house to what he's ready to be now. This is a gift. It's going to break our heart to say goodbye to him. But Lord, it's been an honor. Thank you. He came to visit us a year later. He brought a whole bunch of school books. His teachers think he's doing brilliant. His foster carers are amazing. But he said, Chris, I really miss the church. I'm going, why's that then? He said, well, this new family, they don't do church. I said, oh, look, they are brilliant people. They love you as their own. Yeah, but I want to come to church. 
And I'm going, well, you know, some, at some point in your life, you're going to be old enough to go for yourself. But at the moment, just stay with them. They love you to bits. Wouldn't it have been amazing if I could have handed them on to a Christian family? Someone that would nurture his faith and help him to come to know the God that says you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Wouldn't that have been fantastic? Friends, that's why I need your help. I'm trying to change the mindset of the church. And with your help, we can do it.